right, we are back. Welcome to another episode of Celluloid Jelly, the podcast with a couple of ex-video store guys who just love talking about movies. That's us. What an intro. Yeah. Uh, Oh, uh, I'm CJ Talbot. (laughs) And uh, with me as always is is my my good buddy and my podcasting partner. Introduce yourself. Hey everyone, it's been a little while. Um, well, I guess uh, we've been recording episodes, but as always, I'm Cesar Alejandro. Uh, we've been releasing episodes, but we haven't really been recording, so you're going to have to forgive us a little bit for this episode. We have to shake a little of uh, the cobweb off. Cobwebs? What? It must be Halloween or something. Oh, what? Happy Halloween! <laughs> Hopefully you guys can hear this on Halloween, but we'll do our utmost, I'm sure. Now, Getting a little close. Now, Cesar, before we get into our discussion of uh, today's movie um, and our usual discussion of, you know, like, hey, what have you been watching lately? Um, I thought it would be fun to kind of just talk a little bit about Halloween, the the night, not the movie. Uh, okay. <laughs> Drop a little surprise on me, but I can roll with it. That's, that's what I like to do. So, so I, I thought it would be fun for you, for me to ask you a couple of questions and see, you know... Things about you and Halloween. <laughs> okay. Hopefully, <laughs> it'll, it's only a couple things. Like, but hey, like, what's your favorite Halloween candy? My favorite Halloween candy? Yeah. Well, I guess like this, this will transcend because I, I, I like candy a lot generally. But yeah, regular Hershey bars. Ah, see, I they're, knew that about you. They're they're very common outside of Halloween, but very uncommon for something that people will give away. Because a lot of people view them as just uh, plain, but I think they're awesome. Fair enough. All right. Uh, least favorite Halloween candy? Um, there are these really. They only sell them around Halloween, but they're these weird, like, like orange and brown peanut candies. <laughs> <laughs> You're going down on peanuts. Oh. No, well, I mean, they're weird. I'm not sure what they are, but they're, like, the generic candy that, you know, you'd find, like... Like, they're the candies that, like, bad teachers would give you when you're in elementary school. Yeah, to make your mouth all pasty. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure what... I'm not <laughs> even sure what kind of candies those are, but they were, like, a weird peanut type of thing. If I, I remember, right? We're talking. They are weird. I kind of like them, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What, what are they? I don't know. They're just kind of, like... I don't, they're, like pasty like peanut shaped stuff i don't know and they're wrapped in like this weird little like paper mache well not always sometimes they just come in a bag together oh okay you can have them okay good um candy corn yay or nay um they're fine (laughs) i'm nothing against them Fair enough. Do you know what uh, when candy corn was first invented? Do you know what it was originally called? Um, corn candy. No, chicken feed. Oh, okay. Yeah, little Halloween trivia there. How like how old is that? Oh, I don't like seventy years or something. I don't know. I didn't write it down. Okay. It's been a long time though. Not within our lifetimes. Candy corn's been around for a while. Uh, your favorite Halloween costume growing up as a kid? Uh, well, I guess probably the nineties. I did like the Rocketeer. <laughs> really? Yeah. Nice. So, 
it was one of those cheapy, you know, kind of suits and masks type of things. But I'm a, you know, as people who've listened to our 25 films that influenced us as a, as a viewer, Rocky Tear is one of my faves. It definitely is. That's like, that's a cool ass costume though. Rocketeer, yeah. like the helmet and everything. <laughs> no, no, no. It, was, it was just one of those little mask things. So it had like, it looked like a big soul, like a big golden, like flat plate with like the big black eyes eyepieces so it wasn't you didn't have like the like the steering fin or anything like that in it uh, was it something that you crafted at home or bought from like a boxed costume yeah super cheap oh, okay but it's the rocketeer so i was into it nice well i had a bunch of those growing up too like i had spider-man and darth vader and i remember the a picture of that darth vader costume it was yeah pretty cool yeah it was pre- my mom made the the belt with like the the light up stuff yeah it was pretty awesome had a sweet, sweet space cape. Uh, you need to find that picture and uh, post it in the group for everyone to see. Yeah, have a <laughs> digital copy of it somewhere. I do. I really do. Um, and I do have a digital copy of it. Uh, I, to, to be honest, though, I think my favorite picture of me, like, in costume as, like, a little kid is, like, as a cowboy. Um and I'm just kind of, like, laying on the steps. So, like, I'm small enough to where, like, I'm laying on the steps and it's not, like, uncomfortable. So, like, I wasn't very tall. And I had, like, blonde hair. When I was when I was really little, I had blonde hair. And I have, like, one leg up and I'm, like, on my side. And I have my gun sort of, like, cocked. Like, it, it looks very, like, confident. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's probably my favorite picture of me as a kid for Halloween. As a, yeah, as, I, as a cowboy, so, but I did love that Darth Vader costume. I wore that like four years in a row or something. Yeah, I had to keep getting longer pants. That's fine. <laughs> the cape got shorter and shorter, though. <laughs> uh, any favorite Halloween customs? Whether that be like something that everybody does or something that you and your family do. Um, no, I mean just trick or treating, I guess. I think it's evolved a bit as you get older. When you're a kid, you really enjoy it. Like, as an adult, I love giving candy out. Yeah. When's the last time you dressed up for Halloween? How long has it been? <laughs> Years, probably. Yeah. I had planned I had planned to dress up as something for this year, but as always, time just kind of goes by. You're unable to kind of hit it. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things, like, you know, um, Chelsea want, yeah, wanted yeah, us yeah. to, like, dress up and... Um, it's just an ordeal, like trying to pick what you want to be and then trying to get a costume together. And man, I already got a job. <laughs> I don't have time for that. <laughs> I think, okay, I think we need to make like a promise though that for next year, you and I will dress up as something for Halloween or at least for a Halloween recording. Okay, all right. All right. All right, that's fine. So for for next year's Halloween episode, we will have to do like a like a live video stream, no, where we're dressed up happen. in costumes. No, that's not gonna happen. Picture <laughs> <laughs> of myself recording, and then we can we can share it with everyone out there. Oh, okay, very good. But yeah, but maybe a live stream. So, many, so well, I'm not gonna toss. I'm not gonna say no. It's in the realm of possibility, but unlikely. Okay. Um. It just jumping back real quick, I didn't say what my favorite Halloween candy was. Um, you know, my my favorite candy uh, is probably Reese's peanut butter cups. But I think my favorite thing 
to eat at Halloween time, because I don't get them normally, are those 100 grand bars. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they're like caramel with uh, chocolate and, like, crispy rice inside. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I like those a lot. And I like mini Snickers a lot. I like mini Snickers a lot more than I like regular full-size Snickers. Is it because, like, each bite's wrapped in chocolate? Well, it's... I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think Snickers is something, like, you eat a whole bar and it just kind of, like... It's too much. But if you eat, like, one of the little mini bars, it's just, like, the perfect amount. Okay. Whereas, like, the opposite is true with Reese's. Like, for Halloween, they give away one cup instead of two cups, usually. But one cup's not enough. I can never eat just one. Okay. <laughs> Someone out there has got to, like, feel my pain on that one. Like, with Reese's cups, like, I, I want to eat, like, six of them at a time. Well, you know. November 1st, you know, day after Halloween, you can get as many peanut butter cups as you want. Yeah, probably not on, like, you mean, like, discounted at the grocery store or something? Yeah. No, no way. You seen Reese's runs out? or No, I'm saying that they hold their value. They don't go on clearance. Shit like Peeps goes on clearance. (laughs) (laughs) If it's on Halloween labels, it sure as hell goes on sale. (laughs) Maybe, maybe you're right. Anyway, but I'm on a diet. I'm not eating candy at all right now. Oh yeah. Trying to uh-huh. trying to yeah, shed a few pounds. For you then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll, well, I, t- I I I made a pact that uh, if there's any Halloween candy left this coming weekend, that I can have a few pieces as like a reward. But I'm oh, not yeah. gonna, I'm not gonna eat any candy this week. You guys are getting the good stuff though, right? Just in case. Uh, we have a giant. It's gonna be gone. I mean, because we get trick-or-treaters around here, but it's going to be gone. So, uh, But we got 100 Grand Bars and M&M's and uh, all, all the good stuff. Snickers Bars and, you know. So, go yeah, all out. Took a, a couple behind the TV or something? Yeah. No, no, no bags of popcorn or apples around in this house. Toothbrushes. <laughs> Toothbrushes. Oh, that's the best. Hot roasted peanuts. I got a rock. <laughs> anyway, all right, we can move on. I, I think I don't think I had any other questions about Halloween. So, you have any okay. questions about Halloween you want to ask me? Well, I mean, I don't know. This is this was a surprise, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I'll talking. take I'll take that as a no then. No. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, what have you been watching lately? What do you want to recommend to the kids? Have you been watching a ton of horror movies? I haven't really checked your letterbox. Uh, I have, but um, I set a goal for myself um, to do fifty horror movies this fifty horror movies this month. Ooh, did you make your goal? Uh, you I still have, have a night. I've not. I've hit uh, thirty six by my count, but it's, I think a lot of it's because I peppered it with like other regular movie watching besides horror or thriller related stuff. Yeah. So, uh, because we were talking about a horror film for this episode. We sure are. The movie I'm going to talk about is uh, recently released, um, The Night Comes for Us, which was uh, put out on Netflix maybe about a week or two ago. So, you're going to have to forgive me if I can't speak too, like, 100% uh, clear on it, because it's been a little bit uh, since I saw it. Uh, But it's um, an action film from Indonesia. Um, it's directed by a gentleman 
named Timo Gigianto, but it features a number of principal actors and talents behind the screen as well um, who worked on the Raid films. Oh, yeah? Okay. Um, at its core, it's basically a, um, I guess, a crime, uh, rede- revenge, redemption film. Um, there is a, a killer, uh, an assassin who works for Chinese triads in Indonesia, uh, played by Joe Taslam. Um, who people would probably know from as the Raid, right? Yeah, of the Raid, as well as uh, Fast and Furious Six. I want to say um, he plays the guy that beats up um, Han and um, the, whatever Tyrese's character's name is, Roman. He beats both of them up in the subway or something. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, he um, goes ag- goes against. Um, orders and saves a young girl and basically he goes on a run um, and he's beset by killers and gangs on all sides as he's trying to like find a way to, to keep himself alive as well as this young girl. Um, it's a super bloody film. Probably one of one of the best action films I've seen. Um, well, it probably has some of the best action I've seen all year, uh, but it probably isn't ultimately going to be one of the best action films overall. Okay. But it's intense. It's got way more blood than your typical horror movie, and it's uh, explosively violent. I don't know how else to describe it. It's it goes places in terms of like the action that you know are pretty gruesome, but it's honestly something that's been missing um, in a lot of action films. So the fact that it's so gutsy, huh, pun intended, is uh, something I really enjoyed. Nice. Do you have a, a favorite first time watch uh, from this year, horror movie wise? Horror movie? Yeah. Did you watch a lot of new stuff, or did you watch a lot of stuff that uh, that you'd already seen? I, I want to say probably sixty percent. Sixty percent of my general movie watching is new stuff, but I tend to revisit a lot of movies either uh, I'd seen when I was a kid, or just something you know that I just revisited because it came out recently on on Blu-ray or what have you. Yeah. But for horror movies specifically, geez, I don't know. Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I guess I might as well spoil it a little bit, but I'm going to say The Wailing might be right up there, which is our topic of discussion for this episode. Had you never seen it before? No, I had. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. All right, so it was a first time watch for both of us. That's nice. Okay. Uh, how about you, CJ? What have you been watching recently? Uh, well, um... Like you, I've watched a, a number of horror movies this month. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't reach thirty six or whatever it is that you've gotten to, um, and and I did pepper in a few non horror movies as well, uh, mostly movies that we went and saw at the theater. Um, although, did you see the new Halloween movie? Uh, no, actually, I haven't had a chance to make it to the theater for quite a bit. Really? Okay. Um, well, I was the able to down a lot of uh, you know the two watch DVD and Blu Ray pile, but. Not as much as I wanted to this this month. Yeah. Uh, well, I I did. I'll I'll go completely spoiler free. Uh, we saw the new Suspiria, which doesn't open nationwide until I guess November 9th. Um, we went down to the uh, the Cinerama Dome. Uh, it's one of only two theaters that are playing it right now. And uh, yeah, we uh, Chelsea hated it. I'll throw that out there right now, um, as she had never seen the original one. Um, but she really, really did not have a good time watching the new one, <laughs> which, which tickled me, uh, to no end because I, I, I had a good time watching it. 
Um, but the new Suspiria was directed by, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his name right, but it's, uh, Luca Guadagnino, um, and he's an Italian filmmaker who did Call Me By Your Name, I Am Love, A Bigger Splash, um, and, uh, you know, he's certainly, you know, become, uh, you know, one of the, the top, uh, filmmakers in, in the world right now, as far as, you know, being respected, uh, and so, you know, Suspiria, the original Dario Argento film, was one of his favorite movies, um, and he wanted to to remake it, and he did, um, he did a movie that shares the basic, the basic plot when you boil it down to the logline of, like, an American dancer who goes abroad, um, joins a dance company, and then unusual things start to happen, uh, and and she begins to suspect that uh, that the dance company is run by uh, witches. Um, aside from that, this movie bears no resemblance to the original film uh, in both good ways and bad ways. Um, you know, with that, like I said, without getting into a lot of spoilers, um, the violence in this movie is much less bloody and much more brutal, like bone-breaking, you know, almost possession-esque uh, violence as opposed to, like, the slasher violence in the original. Yeah. Um, that first murder in the original Suspiria is pretty intense, though. Yeah, yeah. The hanging-slash-stabbing is <laughs> brutal. Yeah. The, I, I just I recently rewatched the original Suspiria as well, and, and they're, they're just drastically different movies uh, and i really enjoyed this new suspiria um i thought you know tilda swinton and dakota johnson and the you know the whole cast gives good performances um if i had any uh I, not necessarily complaints but i i would say that the movie's too long it, it just is it's like two hours and 36 minutes or something like that and uh i generally think most movies are too long yeah <laughs> this this movie um, adds a secondary story, again, without spoiling it, um, of a psychologist uh, who, at the beginning of the film, is treating one of the dancers from this uh, troupe, and he becomes involved trying to investigate what's happening. Um, and he has... Uh, it, it's, it takes place... Oh, God, let me see if I get this right. It takes place, I think, in the 60s. So we're about 20 years in post-war Berlin in the new film. Okay. Um, and the, the psychologist lost his wife in the war. And there is, there is a secondary story where he tries to investigate. And a lot of his past comes back into his story. Um, and I, to be honest, uh, you know, I, I kind of liked the addition of that, but I also feel like it sort of drags some of the movie down a little bit. And I, I think, I think this movie's you know, pretty fat. Uh, and, and I, I think 20 minutes could be cut out of it at least yeah. e easily. Um, and it's kind of a slow burn with the exception of a couple scenes of like really like hardcore violence. Um, you really don't get the, the big payoff until the very, very end, which I guess is kind of like, uh, the original film. Yeah. Um, but man, uh, 
<laughs> the the payoff is just bonkers crazy in this movie. Yeah. Um, and then there's like a, a nice little epilogue. The the film's broken up into six acts and an epilogue. Um, so I I think it's too long, and I think at times it doesn't maintain tension uh, the way I wanted it to, and it doesn't get as bizarre as I wanted it to. But overall, I still enjoyed it, and I think it's worth checking out for, for diehard horror fans or fans of the original movie. Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly curious. I do want to rewatch a handful of our Gen 2 films. Probably not Mother of Tears, but Suspiria and Opera, you know, before watching this newer one. Uh, I've never seen Opera. That one's good. Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah, cool. I don't think it's as good as the original Suspiria, but um, I, I can't say I've too much experience in Italian, like Giallo horror and stuff. So yeah, uh, Jessica Harper does have a uh, a cameo performance in the new Suspiria as well. I won't say uh, who she is or what she what she, she does, teacher, but she instructor. Uh, I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna say. The killer. <laughs> You're not going to get it out of me, Alejandro. Okay. All right. All right. So, hey, um, you already mentioned, uh, I think we both mentioned that we were talking about The Wailing uh, this week. Um, so, uh, The Wailing was your choice. Um, so, what is The Wailing about, Cesar? Uh, okay. Well, The Wailing is a, a South Korean film from 2016. It's directed by a gentleman named Na Hong Jin. Um, who I think probably um, gained notoriety because he directed a film called The Chaser, and since then he's directed films like Yellow Sea and um, a number of other acclaimed international productions. Um, at its core, the movie's about uh, the small kind of rural-esque town um, who is experiencing like a spate of bizarre, brutal family murders. Um, it's uh, treated almost like a disease. The murderer's uh, exhibit rashes uh, that eventually coalesce into acts of like uh, brutal violence. Um, a lot of this is tied to the appearance of uh, a Japanese man um, who's very mysterious and he lives on the outskirts of town um, and people begin to blame him for, uh, for the murders or being somehow responsible thereof. All of that is true. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you you end up following um, uh, a local police officer who's uh, a bit of a a bubbling idiot, I guess. Um, uh, But when uh, the rash appears on uh, a close, uh, a loved one, um, his daughter, um, he begins to take things much more seriously. Yeah, uh, I I really, um, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I think uh, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it had a good reputation. And uh, I remember. Yeah. Uh, it's like something that I think that I didn't realize it until like after I'd watched the movie was that like, you know, I don't really put a lot of stock in Rotten Tomatoes, but it's, it's got like a 99% rating <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. So for some people who do put stock in them, you know, that's, that's a pretty impressive feat, I guess, just in general though. Yeah. I'm sorry, but go ahead. That's okay. That's all right. Um, yeah, this this movie starts off um, like a procedural almost. You know, we we uh, 
you know, we come in on the, the policeman and his family. He's waking up early. He gets a call. Uh, there's been, uh, someone has died, um, and he has to go into work very, very early. Uh, and, you know, his family makes him sit down and, and eat, uh, breakfast before he goes. Uh, so obviously it wasn't super important that he got there. <laughs> um, that's his approach to work, I guess. Yeah, but I, I exactly, I, I think that's important to kind of establish that like, you know, I, I, this is kind of like a sleepy village, you know, where I imagine not a whole lot of heavy crime takes place. So like, he doesn't know what to expect. He doesn't understand, um, what he's about to walk into yeah i he he kind of he kind of offhandedly tells his wife that he thinks someone killed the woman that he's going to investigate um she's a a ginseng farmer's wife uh something like that it's it's you know in the end it's not really important right but it turns out that not only the wife is killed but he has been killed um, by someone that they both knew. I, I was kind of, I, I was kind of shaky on the relationship of the actual uh, of the boy who killed them to them. Well, I think you 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 start to, at the very beginning of the film. You try to establish a, a relationship between them, um, but you know whether it's something. I mean, you assume um, generally as like an officer would that maybe it was like a romantic triangle or something of the sort. Yeah, because they call it a crime of passion. Yes. At one point, so, but yeah, so like you know, like he he's investigating this, you know, like it's any normal crime, and then just you know, odd things continue to build up. Um, he starts to have nightmares and visions uh, associated with what's happening. Um, pretty disturbing visions, yeah. Yeah, um, and then and then some some things happen that just cannot be ignored. You know, physical things that are happening um, that that cannot be tossed away as um, paranoia or anything like that. And, uh, and, you know, once, once he meets the Japanese man, things really start to like barrel downhill with a head of steam and it gets, it gets pretty intense. Yes, absolutely. I Uh, think one of the things about this movie is at the beginning, uh, I mentioned he was a bit of a bumbling, (laughs) a bumbling cop at the beginning is that like, there's, there's quite a bit of like humor, like peppered at the in, throughout the first act. Um, I, I would say not even just through the first act, but I think that I think the humor becomes darker as the movie goes on. Yeah, but I yeah, think, it's, uh, one of the strengths of this of this film is that like there are moments that you'll find humorous, but then almost like immediately once you're back into like the darkness of the actual meat of the story, like despite like maybe having maybe having like a chuckle, you know. A minute later, thirty in thirty seconds, like your um, the tone changes because things like whip around so quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he and his partner are not you know the sharpest tools in the shed, I guess. And their boss thinks that they're idiots. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. There's a lot of lot of humor. Um, I I, I really like the scene where he is attacked by the two people at the the house burning, like the aftermath of that the burning house with the, the yeah. woman. Um, you know, he's sort of attacked, and it becomes very comical, uh, you know, because they're not hurting him, but he's freaking out, and he's um, 
he's sort of shamed and embarrassed by the the whole thing because he he doesn't really act like a man, uh, yeah. uh, or quote unquote like a man. I, I think they they uh, his partner tells him not to feel bad, even though he has like pea sized balls. Um, you know, once they get back to the station or something like that. Um, but yeah, like I, I mean, there there are supernatural aspects to this. Um, but there's like body horror in this movie and, uh, it's just, you know, it, it's really like, I think I wrote down on my notes at one point that this was like six different movies in one, but somehow magically it kind of all works. Yeah. The genre bending, I think in a lot of Korean films can be off putting. Um, but I think when you have a director who has, uh, like a technical level, like, uh, like Ma, I think he's he's able to kind of meld them together um, very naturally almost. Yeah. Um, and he focuses on the right bits at certain times. So it's, it's easy. It's easy to, it would have been supremely easy to screw this up, but thankfully he didn't. Yeah. And I, I think as a viewer, um, at least early in the film, you, you kind of start to dismiss some of the more quote unquote supernatural things. Um, as, as like, you know, like I said earlier, paranoia or something, you know, like when he has, um, he, he's being told the story of the Japanese man eating a deer carcass in the woods, which was relayed to the policeman by, a, um, uh, like it was, I guess, third party, um, by, you know, a hunter, uh, who fell down a hill and hit his head. And when he woke up, the Japanese man, you know, what looked, you know, mad, uh, and that he was eating, uh, mad meaning insane, uh, and that he was eating a deer carcass. Uh, and then, you know, because of that suggestion, you know, or so maybe we think because of that suggestion later in the film, uh, what's his, is it Zhang Zhu? Is that uh, the name of the cop? Oh, Zhang Gu. Zhang Gu, okay. Um, he has his own vision very, very similar to that when he's at the house, um, it's not the house that burned down. It's the house where they found the dead body or where the dead body came from originally. Right. Well, he has a dream at home. Um, and then that, that scene at the the house burning, that's a little bit later. Yeah. But like the one where he meets the mysterious woman for the first time. Yes. Uh-huh. That, that, that's the one I'm talking about where like once she disappears, he looks for her and he finds the Japanese man with the red eyes and the blood covered face. Um, and then that turns into it was him having a nightmare. So like, yeah. yeah so like at, at that, he, he, you know, the director does a really good job of kind of like melding reality with fantasy, and you kind of don't know what's real and what isn't. Yeah, especially um, because in that scene just previous to that, um, at the scene of the house burning the night previous, you see um, he catches a glimpse of the Japanese man just looking absolutely normal, just curious. Uh, you know, along with like the peanut gallery of everyone who's like standing around watching this house burn down. So like that scene generally is pretty at odds, though, though you get a feeling of like, you know, uncomfortableness um, as the Japanese man played by Kunimura Jun, um, you know, kind of locks gazes with, uh, with Jonggu. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm trying to like envision it as you're saying it. Um, 
Well, like after he gets attacked by uh, the two people, he's kind of like on the ground, kind of looking around at everyone. And he yeah. looks over, he sees the Japanese man is kind of, he sees his face wearing like his fishing hat. Right. Over like a, a fence so or a wall barrier. Yeah, n- not the first time that he's seen the Japanese man either. Um, I, I think, I mean, we're kind of skipping around, but like um, earlier in the film, he and his wife... Um, after a nightmare, he wakes up one morning and as he's having breakfast, he's watching his wife do laundry. And I guess, you know, they, uh, they, they get a little, they get a little horny (laughs) and they, they go to, to have some privacy. They go in and have sex in the backseat of the car and they're, after they finish, they're not interrupted, but like after they finish, the daughter is there and he freaks out. And I think it's hilarious because after that, he like takes her to the store to buy toys. Like he's buying her silence. <laughs> but then, then they go sit by the river. Yeah, it, that's actually a very sweet scene, honestly. It, it is. It, it's, it's a very sweet scene. And I like the relationship between the father and the daughter. But when they... At the end of that scene, when they kind of give us our point of view shot from their perspective, you see the Japanese man fishing on the other side of the river. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so he, he kind of just pops up all over the time, all over the place. So can, I, I, we can just get into this because, like, I have questions about the ending that I'm not sure you can even answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably not. And I think probably um, one of the strengths of this film is how, you know, kind of open-ended... Uh, the ending is and how um, how many ter- twists and turns you kind of get put through during the during the course of the film. Yeah. So I, you know, like I, I'm not sure like there's any real literal like breakdown that you can do for this. Uh, maybe there is, but like I, you know, um, having only seen the movie once, I can't really like. Maybe a breakdown isn't in order. Maybe this should just be this episode should mostly just be a discussion about the film and what we think about it. Yeah, well, that's I'm just getting to the the fact that uh, like the 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 mysterious female character, the shaman. Okay. Heads the, up, guys! You're not going to get any answers. I'm just I'm going to call it right now. <laughs> but you're going to have some fun discussion, though. So all the characters that become intertwined by the end of the movie, like. I watched the ending twice. Um, I just, like, the last 30 minutes or so, I watched it again, like, early this morning, you know, just to keep it a little bit fresh. And uh, I'm not sure who the mysterious woman is, and I'm not even sure, like, I think there are plenty of, there's plenty of evidence that she is helping. Uh but I, I think I'm still unsure if that's really the case. I agree with you. Um, the shaman, uh, or at least the one that they call the shaman, because I think the woman is a shaman also. Maybe not, but whatever. Um, so, but the, the shaman is obviously, you know, they pay him to come and help their daughter. And... He, he's been given legitimacy right off the bat because as he walks around their property, he, by, like, by whistling, he senses, like, the, I guess it's, like, a, a blackbird or a crow in their soy sauce container as, like, a hex. So he's able to kind of sniff that out, like, immediately, which kind of, like, as a viewer, you're like, oh, yeah, this guy's got some magical powers. 
Um, well, also, you know, they mentioned that he was suggested by a family friend. So, like, you know, you have, like, I guess, like a real-world legitimacy tied, you know, even outside of his first appearance um, on the property. Yeah. But by the end of the film, you're not sure if he's still the same guy, if he is tainted by the evil, whether that be partially possessed or, or whatever, you know, because... Um, if you if you believe that the that the mysterious woman is a good character, then the shaman has a very negative reaction to her, um, and it you know which obviously implicates him, you know as an opposite force. And then later in the film, when when we see him leaving, he has um, all the photographs that are taken after the victims have died. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kind of like walking through it in my head. So like you feel free to jump in anytime. <laughs> like, okay. the, the Japanese man, you know, like the villagers, obviously there's a, a you know, sort of a xenophobic quality to this. You know, he's an outsider and obviously you could probably shed some light into. Yeah. How, um, how did you watch this film? On Netflix. Okay. Uh, I watched it on Blu-ray. Okay. Um, I'm sure the subtitles were pretty similar, if not exactly, but uh, the subtitles, uh, they refer to him as a Jap, which is pretty derogatory. Right. Um, did they did it refer to him like that in the Netflix uh, subtitles? Yes. Okay. Um, but they, there's also a rumor that he was like a, a, an esteemed professor. Uh, so, like, I almost sort of weave this you know, this sort of backstory tapestry in my mind that, you know, that perhaps he was a professor um, who was maybe interested in the occult and things like that, and then kind of got in over his head and maybe, you know, maybe became possessed by this evil force. And I kind of get the sense through the movie that he's not always possessed by it. Um, Because there are scenes that don't make sense if he is like, a literal devil or demon. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Because, yeah. like, he feels very, I mean, like, he's very mysterious through most of the film. Um, he tends he tends to be very tight-lipped. Um, but then, like, once you begin to question whether or not he is or is not responsible for this, there are moments of, like, humanity that they, that they cover him with. Like, when he's buying, when he's buying chickens, which, you know, you realize what he uses them for later on. Right. Um, very, it's, that's a bit. That's one of those odd bits of like comedy later on that you see. Um, it's very, very you know, kind of subtle comedy. But yeah, yeah, um, definitely. He, he's negotiating for like cheaper, <laughs> you know, che- cheaper meat. I guess. Right, and you you alluded to it that he uses them in his own ritual, um, and you know, ultimately, I'm not sure whether that ritual was to ensure like, <laughs> like, I, to ensure that the. Uh, that the the dead person doesn't come back to life, or is it to ensure that he does come back to life? Is he trying to raise the dead, or is he trying to prevent that? Like, I'm not sure. Like, this this movie is so good at kind of leaving it so open ended. Um, well, through the progression of the film, once you see you see him harried, and he sees you find like, um, I guess a a truck with a dead body in it. Right. We we know that that person inside that truck was responsible for a family murder and like the police and everyone are still looking for him, but he's been, 
somehow dead inside, which you mentioned earlier, the body horror. So he, the rash, um, I guess, manifested itself and eventually killed him while he was in his vehicle. Yeah. Uh, but it, you're right. The movie kind of like jumps around and, you know, you don't know necessarily who to trust. Um, and I think because as a viewer, you're, you want to try to like make sense of it in your mind. Um, like it's, it somehow very naturally makes you question everything you know up until that very moment. And it does so repeatedly throughout like the final half of the film. Yeah. Um, that might be one of the things that, uh, that the director wants you to pull from the film is that like, you know, the, that these are questions that, you know, the supernatural and spirituality and religion are, are attempt are man's attempt at sort of understanding the unknown but it's the unknown for a reason. Like, none of this is knowable. You know, you'll never get to the bottom of it. You'll never get the answers that you want. Bad things just happen the same way that good things just happen. Yeah, evil exists. Yeah. So, so and evil may not take the form you expect it to, and you may not be able to attribute evil to the things you want to attribute it to. Although, ultimately, in the end of this, I think, given the biblical quote at the beginning of the movie... Because uh, the, the movie starts off with a quote from the book of Luke, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and given, you know... Well, you know, I'm not sure... Do you, I didn't actually do any research, but do you know what the context of that quote is? That's Is that like it's, Jesus It's when Jesus it? reappears to the apostles after the resurrection. Okay, yeah. Um, which is uh, which is interesting because the, the, the demon or devil at the end of the movie uses pieces of the same quote to the young deacon. Who we haven't talked about yet. I, the you know the uh, Poor guy man. <laughs> the presence of that character as well brings that sort of uh, that Christian uh, mythology into the film, uh, and and I really like that the movie kind of goes back and forth and has a lot of di- you know like there's uh, there's Buddhist stuff in the movie, there's Christian stuff in the movie. Uh, the shamans are practicing more of like a tribal spirituality, like not necessarily voodoo, but like you kind of, you know, they're, they're working with forces that aren't necessarily like God or the devil. They're working with other things. And this movie does a good job of sort of like synthesizing all of that into like, you know, um, a, not believable, but into a cohesive kind of thing. Yeah, it's it, it it makes it seem that like all these things are true and exist within, with, you know, with each other. Right. Because the death hex that the shaman tries to put on the Japanese man nearly works. And if, and if he wasn't interrupted by the father, you know, as a viewer, you're led to believe that that would have been the end of it. That could have been the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. But like as a viewer though, you're questioning it the entire time. True. Whether, whether or not that's working. Yeah. And, and it, you know, I get it's, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the other stuff, but really this is like, you know, of all the horrors that this guy sees in his job, the most horrific thing is, is standing by a loved one who is sick. Yes. And that's really what this movie is about. Like the lengths that this man will go to try to help his kid. Yeah. I think um, um, we mentioned earlier, but you know, about like his relationship with his daughter, there's a pretty sweet scene like earlier on where she, you know, she stops by the police station to check up on her father. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, make sure he's, make sure he's eaten after he's been embarrassed. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then like you see like the rapport that they carry with each other, um, how much they care. Um, and then, you know, 
probably one of the more chilling bits of the movie is like the aspect that she changes her character. Oh yeah. There's, there's a huge personality shift. It's very, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Um, the, the night that he goes into her room and looks around and he finds like her notebook with all the pictures and stuff. Um, that's creepy in and of itself, you know, like, yeah, yeah she's drawing pictures of, I, I, and, and I didn't go back and rewatch this part, but there's pictures of like the devil, the demon character, and, and there's like cigarette burns almost in like the, the pages. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, she's, someone else has been there, like has seen that art before. Yeah. And she and uh, prior to that, when she has her nightmare, she says that there's a man trying to get in, um, which you know I I guess um, I guess we're supposed to take that as like a you know literally this 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 entity is trying to get into her soul or whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, like so like in one of the pictures I'm I'm pretty sure was like of her with like blood flowing out of you know the horror of becoming a woman maybe like that sort of thing maybe that's the nice way to put it (laughs) um but yeah like just you know some nasty images and then when she wakes up um you know because her father is a cop and he's investigating and he's looking you know he's seen this he starts to see this rash everywhere like in the restaurant he sees the woman in the sweater that has the rash on her neck. Later, the mysterious woman at the end of the movie is wearing the same sweater from that woman in the restaurant. Yes. Um, that woman who never comes back in any other way, right? We never see her again. She's just the woman in the restaurant. No, isn't she, wait? Isn't she like the one who killed? Um, she's she's another victim. Uh, she's the one who. Um, is she the one that the kid stabs with the scissors? No, no, there's there's like a murder at like um, I want to say uh, his partner or something. Like well, his, his partner, partner kills his landlady, but I don't think that's her. No, no, but like, isn't she like part of that? Part of that? Um, there's like the murders later on, and I'm pretty sure she's part of one of those murders. Maybe the other family that was trying to do like a. Uh, there's another family which looks like they tried to do like a, a shamanistic cleansing. Um, she might have uh, been part of that group. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But, I guess. I, I guess this yeah, movie is yeah, going to yeah. demand a second, like full yeah. rewatch. Um, but yeah, because the the two bodies that he finds, or not, he doesn't find them, but the police find in the well. Is that what you're talking about? At, where you see, like, after they have the the shaman performs the the ritual in their home. The next day, the police see in the aftermath of a similar ritual, they find two bodies in a well. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Those two are the, um, he's the hunter. The hunter who saw the Japanese man in the woods. Okay. That's, that's that character and his wife. Was that not his wife? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Because you don't see a wife when they interview him when the officer interview him at the beginning of the film. Yeah, I, you're, you're right. I'm not sure. You, you might be right. So, but that's, that's what I mean. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie, you're gonna be really confused. what are you doing? 
<laughs> but even if you've watched this movie once in preparation for this podcast, uh, you know, I feel like I'm not necessarily doing a really good job of kind of like digging into it, but that's because I'm so damn confused, <laughs> but in, in the best way possible, like it's just, it's so ambiguous as to what people's motivations are, whether they're good or bad and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I honestly, like, I, I think that can be infuriating in, in, if it's done in the wrong way. And I think, like you said earlier, like, th this could have been a disaster. Um, but it, he's able to, to really synthesize things in the right way. Um, and, you know, even, even the shifts in tone, you know, between humor and not humor and the different types of horror that he's added into this, you know, like that whole, we haven't talked about like the zombie fight scene, which, which is, is hilarious. Like I, like I got a kick out of that scene. Um, you know, the one guy puts a rake, you know, through the back of the guy's skull and he just kind of like turns around and like goes after him and, uh. And I mean, that's a really great scene that you could have, you could do a whole movie, a zombie movie, you know, with scenes like that. But it's just like one scene in this movie about some completely other shit. And, uh, and it, it just works. Um, yeah, that means that scene is, uh, pretty intense too, but I think that, that also like gives you, um, it leads into a chase scene after like the zombie has been kind of like dispatched, I guess. Um, yeah. And they chase the Japanese man. Yeah. Um, um, which that, that also makes you question, you know, allegiances. Um, and when you're watching, you see, I mean, it, it focuses on Jungu's, uh, like obsession of trying to save his daughter. But then you also see like the, hu the, the humanity of a guy, uh, of like the Japanese of Kunimura Jun. Right. You see, like his humanity in that moment. And you know, it's, He's hugely sympathetic in that scene. Uh, Absolutely. You know, that that's that's another scene that I think points to the fact that perhaps even if even if he is embodying this demon, that he's not that he was a human, that he didn't always have that spirit within him. And I think at that moment he's horrified at what he's looking at. And that's when he becomes afraid and starts to run. And I, I think you know, like See, I, I get the get sense. That. I didn't get that. That's not necessarily what I get. Maybe retrospect might give you that. Yeah. Um, I think in the moments, like you know, like I said, first viewing, watching that scene, he's trying to track down. You know, you get the impression that he's trying to find this dead body because you know you you believe at that moment that he's uh, an agent of good. You 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 convince yourself that he's actually trying to help because there are hints uh, that Mo Myung, who's like the woman in white. That she she may be manipulating things, and he you know that's the impression I got that he was acting acting um, uh, uh, for benefit in that moment. Okay, not, yeah, not that he was controlling this like you know undead revenant. <laughs> I don't know. Did, did you not get that or no? Well, I like I think it's I think it's ambiguous. I'm not sure like what to. I don't know whether he is trying to stop that, you know, that undead character, or was he trying to create that undead character? And in that moment is, is he, does he have the same intention that he had previously? Um, you know, if, if he is a professor who is, 
interested in the occult and these things, it, it you know he may have a more clinical approach to it than we than we think. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just want to like uh, like the Japanese man couldn't. I mean, that scene that I mentioned, he's on the run and he suffers an injury. It's pretty kind of graphic, and I, and I mentioned that it elucidates like a, a bit of his like human side. Yeah. I don't I, I think like as an actor, like he's one of my favorite Japanese actors. Period. Um, he's in Kill Bill, right? Yes. Um, I think the two films that people would probably know him most from are probably Kill Bill Volume One and probably Hard Boiled. But those are probably like the two most well known in the West, anyway. But yeah. He's got a pretty illustrious career. Do you do you remember him in Hard Boiled? Uh. Not offhand. Who is he? Um, there's a tea house shootout at the beginning of the film. Yeah. He plays a, uh, a machine gun wielding uh, guy. So he's the guy that, like, Chai and Fat shoots in the face and covered in flour. Oh, okay. All right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, a pretty legendary scene for not having lines, yeah? Yeah. So, definitely. Uh, and Kill Bill, of course, he plays the guy, the Yakuza leader who Lucy Liu decapitates um yeah, boss Tanaka the leadership so he he actually has dialogue though so in that scene nice um do you think that there is anything to be to be said about uh that this is happening to his character because of a lack of faith uh, whose character the Japanese man no the 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 cop Jungu? Yeah. Um, I want to say no. Um, we mentioned earlier that sometimes bad things happen. Right. Happens. So I think that regardless, you know, sometimes despite you, all your efforts, you know, it's futile. Now, that's a pretty nihilistic view of what's going on, but, you know, that's also life, probably. Uh, I mean, I don't want to make light of, you know, the deaths of like children and family members and stuff, um, especially with it, you know, even within the context of the film. But, you know, I think I don't necessarily want to say it's fate. And, you know, ultimately the end of the movie gives him a choice. So he makes a choice and sometimes he, you know, you have to kind of deal with the consequences, I guess, whether that was the right one or not, you know, is not what we're discussing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting, though, um, you know, because of his attitude towards faith early in the movie, you know, um, when he meets the when he meets the deacon, he doesn't really give it much thought. And, um, you know, at that point, they've had a bunch of supernatural type things that have happened. You know, the woman at the police station and um, the his partner starts to wear a crucifix or a cross around his neck. Um, And he he kind of he kind of dismisses that as as sort of like an empty gesture i guess mm-hmm. um you know and and then once things re- once the shit really hits the fan uh they ultimately end up going to the church and uh and the priest tells him that you know the church cannot help him and that he needs to take his daughter to a doctor i think right is that what he says yeah like mm-hmm. follow what the doctor says um you know and then and then later in the film he's given He's given a choice by the woman, as you said, you know, like that, that if he, if he stays with her and has faith and the rooster will crow three times and then the trap that she has set for the demon, um, will be sprung, 
uh, but he he cannot, you know, he doesn't have faith in that. He wants to run and help his his kid. Um, you know, it's very much like Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back when he sees the vision of Han and Leia, and Yoda says that, you know, you have to let him go, and you have to stay here and train with me, and if you go, it's going to be bad, and when he goes, it's pretty freaking bad. So, same thing here. Yeah, same thing. It's just Star Wars. Same thing here. This movie's just The Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back of possessed demon killing families. <laughs> with zombies thrown in there. Yeah. <laughs> one zombie with zombie thrown in there. One one zombie. But like uh, do you want to talk about the ending a little bit? Uh yeah. Well we've been talking about the ending, but okay. go. Uh, okay. What do you think would have happened had he stayed? Uh with uh with Mo Myung, the woman in white. I have no idea. Do you think he made the right decision? I gotta tell you, like, in that scene, I did not trust her, right? Absolutely. Um, well, especially because he, he starts, you know, being a cop, even even though it's kind of shown that he's not a great cop. Being a cop, he starts to notice those details of, the like, the woman's sweater. And uh, the I guess the first thing that draws his attention is... Um, uh, his daughter's like uh, hair clip. Yeah. Like I don't know. Like you know, you know. There there have been a lot of um, you know a lot of horror stories with like possessed artifacts and things like that. So you know who's to say that like that it wasn't the hair clip that originally gave his daughter like the disease, quote unquote. Yeah, he's the one that buys her the hair clip, though. Right, but but you know, who's to say that 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 woman was not there that, or that, that, that wasn't, you know, that it wasn't hexed or something like that. I don't know. It's, you know, it could certainly be that that's, that simply just represents, um, the kid's innocence. You know, well, you know, you know, something I just, just realized you mentioned that like he finds the, what he's investigating as an officer, her room, he finds like the, like the pictures with, um, uh, cigarette burns, the only principal character who smokes is the shaman. Yeah, that's true. Um, like the Japanese man and like the shaman, um, the hair clip and the sweater could simply be the, the woman's attempt to, to take, um, to either protect or curse her. Right. But like, you know, they're, they're all basically, um, taking things from the victims keepsakes yes you know and you, you don't know what motivation that they have for doing so but like the sweater and the hair clip could certainly be just something that she picked up to get spiritually closer to that person so it could be good or bad now do you think now i think it's revealed that uh certainly the huang jung min who plays a korean shaman and uh Kunimura June, the Japanese uh, stranger, like it's definitely revealed that they are pro- they they are probably um, agents of evil in this film. Now, do you think that the woman in white is also an agent of evil? I I don't know. Like you said, I don't trust her. Um, and but I think you can make an argument either way. Yeah, I don't know that there's good sides in this. 
I mean, her, her machinations certainly, you know, I mean, if she's trying to protect people and she has all these artifacts um, from people who were, who were murdered, eventually killed. Right. You know, she's doing an awful job of it. <laughs> True. But, it, but she, like, you know, she does seem supernatural herself. Like, you know, generally being dressed in white, white in a lot of Asian culture is a symbol of death. So like, you know, a lot of people were like Lady Snowblood. Well, not only that, <laughs> but like you know, a lot of times in a lot of um, traditional, like funerals, people wore white as opposed to black in like a lot of Western customs. Right. So like you know, immediately, especially considering she's out in the woods, she tends to be like very fair skinned. You know, she she doesn't seem like she's of this earth, and she's able to you know seemingly traverse like she runs through the woods. She ends up on top of mountains. You know, like, she doesn't, I don't know necessarily that she's of this world. And, you know, she never ever touches, she never ever touches another person. She interacts with the, with the world and the environment. Well, she touches she him. Grabs. She grabs his hand at the end, though. To hold him. But yeah, maybe that's, that last bit is, like, is that the only time she touches him? It is, yeah. Probably. Well, she doesn't really interact with any other characters in the movie except for him. And we, we assume the Japanese man off screen. Well, he's you. You. He makes it seem like he's chasing her at one point, but you never ever see them in the same frame together. Yeah, that's true. But I, I got I got the sense that that was just an an editing trick that that we were supposed to uh, that we were supposed to assume that she was chasing him, that he was running from her, which is why he fell and got hit oh, by the car. Well, that's not what I got. I thought that I thought that he was chasing her. Maybe. But when he caught her, something bad happened to him. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I thought maybe she led him somewhere. But her like supernatural maybe her supernatural nature caused that accident. Yeah, maybe. I mean she's she's definitely it seems like she's very powerful, um, regardless of whether she is human or not. Um, you know, because when the shaman shows up, he has a very extreme reaction to just being near her, whether that be you know, magic or not. Um, mushrooms. Yeah, or mushrooms, right? Um, yeah, in that moment, the fear he feels is uh, pretty intense, too. Yeah. Because you see, he, like, he, he doesn't come off as anything but confident every time you see him prior to that scene. He's so sure of himself. Right, but as soon as he, as soon as he leaves there, he really, like, he, he's hightailing it back to soul. Um, he, sees, he sees weird, weird visions, you know, like while yeah. he's driving. Yeah, as it, you know, the the insects or moths or whatever, um, which is which is revealed to be supernatural, not not real. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think we're gonna get any answers, um, you know. But uh, I, I I think it's I think it's a movie that um, that really worked on me as a viewer and even watching the the last 30 minutes or so a second time um like it was very chilling uh you know i I was i was getting even though i knew it was going to happen i was still getting that sort of spine tingling quality out of of the the ending like the last 20 minutes or so like when hyojin disappears and he goes to look for an encounter as a woman in white but simultaneously she reappears back home um, the whole time that she's at, she appears at her family gate. 
and then she goes into the kitchen to eat. Like, there's a very brilliant, like, scene where after she's finished eating, like, she's really kind of, like, eating, like, disgustingly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, she, it does a quick, like, three shot where she, like, looks at her grandmother, looks at her mother, and then, like, for, like, a split second, looks at a knife, and yeah. then the scene transitions again. You just feel nothing but, like, dread in that moment. Yeah, very, absolutely. Very effective. Like, I thought that scene was, like, blew me away. Yeah, well, even even the deacon approaching the Japanese man in the cave, like, I I think is very tense. Um, so, base, definitely. Like, I mean, like, what, what, you know, even if he doesn't, who knows? Like, does he get killed? Does he survive? Like, regardless, if the deacon, if the deacon kills him, you know, he's a victim of his own faith. If the, if he lets that if he lets him live, you know, then like his faith has been destroyed because demons exist, kind of, or you know, it's like he's he's also been destroyed regardless of whether like he kills. Well, I mean, if you believe God exists, I guess you have to believe you know in the opposite. No, like if he kills him, then he's been destroyed because he's a murderer. If right. He lets right. Him live, then like you know he's let he's left demons. You know, so you know regardless. His faith has been shattered. Well, because, I mean, certainly in that moment, coming face to face with with pure evil is is probably something that he he never anticipated it would happen. Even going into the church, you know. So I, you know, I, I like his character. I like the fact that he gets his cheek almost bitten off by the zombie guy. <laughs> well, you know, who knows? Like maybe you know, we talk about like there's a rash. You know, that proximity to that guy might have done something to him. Maybe that's something, you know, maybe like the fact in his mind, you know, he's encountering a demon. But maybe, maybe in real life, he just, he just finds this Japanese shaman, like in this cave, in his mind, he's seeing him as a demon. And that's what will cause like violent outbursts. You see like, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you see other people like eventually end up killing their families, who, like out of those men, who um, didn't one of them end up killing his family after like the visit or the encounter with the zombie? So maybe that proximity is something that infected him. Yeah, it's possible. You don't know. You don't know. I certainly don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything. I don't know anything except for the fact that this is a pretty good movie that I I, I definitely recommend uh, for those who love uh, a good horror movie. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty upsetting at, at, in moments, too. Like, really upsetting. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, the, the one scene of the, the boy who, who commits the original murders of the ginseng farmer and his wife, when they go to the hospital to see... Um, is uh, are they there to see the daughter? Um, but they go and and the the boy has these uh, violent convulsions, well, and like they, they bring her they bring her to the hospital, I think. And like the doc, that's when the doctor says, "I don't know what's wrong," but that's when they see the rashes. Well, the mother says, "Like the rashes have been there for a few days." Yeah, but the father's not there with them at that point. No, wait, yeah, the grandmother's the there. He's at the hospital because the hunter that they went with got struck by lightning. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is which is hilarious. <laughs> I 
I think lightning's actually used for comedic effect uh, in in the movie. Like earlier, when the the two policemen are in the station, and the partner's telling him the story about the Japanese man, um, like they use lightning as a way to like sort of punctuate that scene quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and then when the when the hunter gets struck by lightning, it's just like this is completely like out of the blue, like. <laughs> literally out of the blue because it's like so bright out there yeah um but yeah but like the scene where the the young boy is having like the convulsions in the hospital bed uh and it's so violent that he that he breaks his own collarbone and blood starts to run down his face yeah not i'm not even sure like it it almost feels like he might he might have snapped his own neck in that moment too because i think think he dies in that moment but yeah absolutely um but at the very least, you see the staring at Jonggu, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a very haunting image, and I think the guy who plays uh, Jonggu uh, is it Duan Kwok? Am I saying that right? Kwok Duan. Yeah, um, I I think he does he does a really good job of like giving average guy kind of shocking reaction shots without like going over the top and being comedic about it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, he's, he's very good. Everybody's really good in the movie. I think the little girl's really good too. Um, and it's kind of heartbreaking at the end, uh, when you see that shot of them, like on an amusement park ride, like the like teacups or whatever it is. And they're like going around in circles and smiling and laughing and having a good time. Yeah. Cause that'll never happen again. <laughs> do you do you think that he's dying in that moment, or do you think that the kid spares him? Because he's talking to her, uh, telling her that everything is going to be okay. Like when they fade to black at the end. Um, but it doesn't look like he has any visible like puncture wounds. But it's so dark you can't tell. So do do you think that she? stabs him or do you think that he's just horrified yeah i think he's been stabbed okay Mm. so i mean i think it seems to me like regardless of whether like you know whoever survives this this like massacre is kind of like you know their life is destroyed anyway yeah well i mean basically the entire village is tainted like no one's ever gonna have a good life there anymore (laughs) it's just gonna spread and spread but like you know i think it's weird I do think it's weird that like you know six families have like killed they killed themselves. You know, it doesn't seem like that big of a village. You know, yeah, that's like twenty percent of the population. Well, they they call it a village, but it seems more like a town. I mean, they they're po- like a main street kind yeah. of a thing. I mean, but there like, there's a pretty big police force. You know, like that you see a bunch of other cops, especially in that original like murder scene. There's like. Uh, I think like when you have like little, like little townships, you might have like a few kind of like police officer constables there. But then when you have a thing like, you know, if you need CSI, they probably don't have someone on staff to do it. They probably have to call in like a local or there's, it's probably tends to be more centralized, you know, like you'll have like, you know, like a state trooper or uh, equivalent uh, for Korea, because you look at that town, you can't get cars through there. You know, it's, uh, like a lot of those streets are like, uh, you know, whatever bikes probably or or what have you. Like I don't know that uh, or footpaths. A lot of a lot of short, uh, small small alleyways. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, any final thoughts on this one? No, I have no final thoughts. I have too much to think about now. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, obviously, and I think we've both said this multiple times, this is a movie that's going to give you more questions than answers, uh, but it's it's uh, it's good. It's stimulating. You know, it's ambiguous. There's a lot of ways you can interpret it. Um, I think uh, I, I like the film visually. I think, you know, um, you talked about the violence being a little bit gruesome um, in the film. I, I think it, they do a good job of not making it explicit, though. Like, you see the aftermath of the violence, and you see, you know, those who commit violence with blood all over them and things like that, but you never actually see um, anything that's, like, really grotesque. Like, you, you see the aftermath of people getting stabbed. Um, it's like, like seven. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that might be a, a good... Although in seven you got that scene where the, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. I like the, the 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 one that sticks out for me in seven is is the, is it lust? Where the guy's like sort of like, where he he had to basically fuck the girl with a, a knife on his penis. <laughs> Man, I don't remember that scene. <laughs> yeah, like because like the the guys like. Like, I fucked her, I fucked her, I fucked her, I fucked her. He made me fuck her. Like, and there was, like, a prosthetic, like, attachment. Like, that was a, a blade. Right? Am I wrong? <laughs> it's no, been a while since I've seen Seven. Pretty sure that's in that movie, though. The only thing I remember, I guess, that's Sloth. Like, Sloth was still alive. That's that's the thing that's... Oh, that, that was pretty gross, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, I would even go so far as to say Seven is definitely more explicit in its grotesqueness than this is. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like, like living torture going yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, you see blood on the floor, blood on the walls, blood on the victims, blood on the perpetrators, but you don't actually see much in the way of acts of violence. Even when he has to kill the dog in self-defense, um, which is really the turning point of the movie for him. That scene is when he becomes a much more, uh, serious character and and uh, and and a sinner. Yeah, there's just a lot of fucked up stuff in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing about the shaman being the only person who smokes, man, you really blew my mind with that one. I mean, I'm sure there are other people that smoke, but he's the only one that could have had that opportunity, though, right? Plus, you know, I mean, she she has like, you know, when he shows up, she has an explicit distrust of him, you know. That's true, but like the the shaman comes in after that scene, though, right? I mean, it's you can drive from like the town to like wherever wherever his home is, like in a day, less than a day. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's crazy, though. But okay. Um. Anyway, so yeah, let's let's uh, let's wrap this baby up. So good choice. Um. You know, I, I think I think it's always a good thing when we, you know, we come to the end of an episode and we still aren't a hundred percent sure, you know, what our interpretation of something is. So yeah, you can't see my face, but my mouth is hanging open like a goldfish right now. <laughs> now all I can do is picture you like moving your mouth like a suckerfish, like womp womp womp. Well, all right. Cool. Good talk. Yes. Lots to think about. Yes. Um, 
offline, we'll figure out what we're doing for our next episode, I'm assuming. Yeah. And uh, in the in the meantime, I hope everyone has a happy and safe Halloween. Yes, happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> uh, we think we're going to get this episode out uh, by, uh, by Halloween. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Burn into midnight oil, I guess. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, as always, at filmsmash.com, uh, or on Twitter at Junior B. Home. And you can find me on Twitter at Setting the Frame, and of course, uh, you can join the conversation by, uh, becoming a member of our Facebook group. Uh, just search for Celluloid Jelly, or you can find the link in the show notes. Um, and until next time, I guess, uh, thank you, Cesar. Have a good one. You too. Thanks, CJ. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.